Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Sam Oosteroff joins us, MPP for Niagara West and Assistant to the Minister of Education, talking about back to school. The new leader of the Federal Conservative Party, Aaron O'Toole, joins us. And the Boys and Girls Club of Hamilton has run a successful day camp program over the summer. What can schools learn from these camps when it comes to back to class? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. I just realized we are three days into September. I thought it was still March break. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Man, that's funny. Who writes that stuff? Good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers can back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson home show on the air during week number 25. Like, why wouldn't I know that? Uh, feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Starts on the website where you also find today's edition of the commentary on the website at 900CHML.com. You can also send me a note there, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com, Facebook and Twitter as well. All right, let's get going here because I know we've only got so much time with our next guest, uh, Sam Oosteroff, uh, Parliamentary Assistant to the Minister of Education and MPP for Niagara West. You know, we're talking a lot of... Uh, the back-to-school plan, there's a, a lot of anxiety, a lot of uh, concern, fear, confusion, pick your word. And uh, this all has seemed to come back to 15 students per class, reducing class. Uh, and, and I'm not sure if that is even possible when you think of the amount of space we have, let alone the money. Uh, let's bring in Sam Oostra, Parliamentary Assistant to the Minister of Education, MPP for Niagara West. Sam, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. So, you know, I'm not sure anybody's come, really come out and asked this, Sam, but why what, why, or what would it take to actually bring everyone to 15 students per class? Is that possible? Do we have the space? Do we have the capacity? Do we have the money? Well, I think the big thing is taking a step back and looking at where all the direction on uh, the decisions that have been made about reopening schools comes from. And it's made in the context of, uh, the health advice of Ontario's top doctor, Dr. Williams, uh, the chief medical officer of health, uh, as well as others, including epidemiologists, disease control experts, and of course, you know, the advice from sick kids and, and CHEO and their guidance documents. And that's really the context in which the decisions that we've made at the Ministry of Education uh, around ensuring that we have in place things like cleaning, distancing, testing, as well as hiring of staff to ensure safe reopening, which can also be used for smaller classes if that's the decision of the local board, um, and, and ensuring that we have that allocation of funds, it's being made in the context of the best health advice that we can access. Uh, and that's really where their decisions have come from, have been around ensuring that we have in place things like tracing, more cleaning, more distancing and testing, but they haven't said that that's what we need to have in place. This is a number that I know the teachers unions keep talking about. Uh, it's the number they're, they're really fixated on. Uh, but it's not a magic number. Uh, the reality is, is there are a lot of different public health metrics that have to be in place in order to ensure that, that schools are, are safe. And that we have allocated a significant amount of resources, including unlocking reserve funding for, for school boards uh, to allow them to access the funds, the rainy day funds for these types of things. Uh, but I don't believe that that's a magic number. Uh, medical officials have said it's all about distancing and, and keeping two meters apart. Can we do that, though, with... Uh, more than 15 in a classroom. Many are saying they just can't separate that much. Well, again, they've said that there are a number of different metrics that are very important. Uh, and Ontario has put a huge emphasis on a lot of these public health metrics, such as, of course, cohorting. We have some of the smallest cohorts uh, as, a, as a province than any of the other jurisdictions in Canada. Uh, we've put in place HVAC in schools, $50 million to support HVAC in schools, uh, as well as additional PPE and the temporary hiring of educators as required. We've also encouraged school boards to use perhaps non-traditional space for classrooms, things like uh, you know, using cafeterias and, and libraries and, and, and public spaces uh, in the school for this type of uh, distancing. But at the same time, 
if the Chief Medical Officer of Health, Ontario's top doctor and his team say that the measures that we have in place are, uh, are, are good to make sure that students are kept safe and that staff are kept safe, uh, we respect their advice in that regard and we're following that advice. However, I also understand there are parents, and, and we understand that as well, parents who do have concerns, specifically with children with underlying health conditions and, and concerns in that regard. And that's why we've also given the option that they are able to stay home uh, and learn online. We've we put a quite a robust learning uh, online learning platform in place in comparison to what, was, what we had this spring. And we encourage them to use that if that's their top concern. I understand why you're doing what you're doing, but if we were to flick the switch and turn to 15 per classroom, is that possible? Do we have the facilities? Do we have the capacity? Well, you know, I think it's important to also see the consideration uh, based on the board. Uh, Kenora is very different from Niagara, which is different Mm. from Toronto, which is, you know, different from Windsor. And we have to recognize those differences and and ensure that we have a living document. And that's why our plan has evolved. Uh, The plan that came forward or the, the number of different options that were announced in July are, are different than where we see some school boards going uh, right now. We see some school boards going with quadmesters, with some with regular uh, semesters, others with different uh, options and, and different supports in place. So we have to allow some flexibility as well. And also with regards to uh, the number of students in the class, I know in Niagara, where, where I represent uh, both of the uh, public and Catholic boards have decided to use some of the operational funding and use some of the reserve uh, funding that we've given them access to, uh, to do that. That being said, we also recognize that uh, a board, again, in Kenora or or in Sudbury is very different from uh, a board in Ottawa or Niagara. And we recognize that also we've had a really low caseload. And that's, again, the context that all of these decisions are made on is understanding that we have very low community transmission. We have good tracing and, in effect, masking. uh, And we have seen those numbers stay low. Uh, you, I know you've got to run here, Sam, so this will be my last question. I, I know you were using, you talked about the sick kids study. Uh, oddly enough, it's your opposition that's using that against you, saying the sick kids want people spaced out more and the school system is not allowing uh, that to happen. Your thoughts? Well, since day one, we've said that we're going to listen to the health, uh, health guidance of the Chief Medical Officer of Health and his command table, and they've obviously reviewed that, uh, that advice from kids as well as the advice of epidemiologists and and disease control experts Uh, and they have said that the plan that Ontario is putting forward is robust it is reasonable it is it is practical and it will keep kids and students safe so I think it's important that we look at uh, those who are working in this space as uh, as experts Uh, I'm not a medical expert I'm not an epidemiologist and we're going to be following their guidance while allowing uh, flexibility for local school boards and providing them with more resources. Any last words to parents, Sam, on all of this? Yeah, I think it's important that parents recognize they do have a choice, that they don't have to send their children back if, if they don't feel comfortable, if they ha- their child has underlying health conditions. But ultimately, Ontario's plan is one that's been signed off by top doctors. Uh, the medical community is, is in favour of it. Uh, and we are providing more per-pupil funding than any other province in the country uh, to ensure that kids are being kept safe and protected. Sam Oosteroff has been with us, Parliamentary Assistant to the Minister of Education, MPP for Niagara West. Sam, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you so much, sir. Take care. We've been talking many times on the show, and I keep talking about it, and I, I wanted to actually find the clip, and Will did a great uh, job of digging it out. But, you know, I think this is where I have a problem with the teachers' unions, and we already we all love the teachers, but I, I think it just gets to the point where it becomes militant. It becomes an us against them. I think they put government in a position where there's no win. And, you know, I, I think the same thing with the class size. You know, we, we can't reduce class sizes. We don't have the capacity. We don't of the space. That's why high school classes are every other day at 15. Um, So that's impossible. So there's a win there for the unions. And also, there's going to be outbreaks. It's going to happen. It's it's natural. So they can sit back and then say, I told you so. So again, as my commentary states today, this is a no win. But this is the clip. And this was from December of last year. So this was just Three months before the outbreak, and remember the hell going on with the teachers' unions and the fights and the rotating strikes. And this is the clip where Harvey Bischoff says, and he's the president of the Secondary Schools Association, when I was asking him, like, this happens all the time, every government of the day, liberal, NDP, conservative, we've all been through it. I've been through it as a student. I'm going through it as a parent. 
um, you know, why do we keep doing this? And he basically said that governments are out to raid or when governments are out to raid the education system. And it's like, I don't think any of these governments, NDP, liberal or conservative, are out to, quote, raid the system. But here's what Harvey Bischoff had to say back in December of last year. What is different this time? Because as a parent and as a student, it just seems we're going around in circles and it doesn't matter what the government of the day is. There's these conflicts. So I, I understand that perspective, and I'm a you know, 56-year-old parent myself, so we're, we're in the same cohort. Um, and I would say this. Um, every time a government tries to raid the education funding line and, and spend that money on other priorities, right now we have a government looking to you know, they've already given tax cuts to uh, to their wealthy friends. They're they're looking to spend two hundred and thirty one million dollars on canceling green energy projects. Um, you know, they they canceled cap and trade to the tune of three billion dollars. Um, so they're making choices, and those choices are having a negative impact on the publicly funded education system. Every time uh, a government tries to do that, we stand up to defend quality education. So, yeah, we've been nonpartisan in that defense of the system. It hasn't mattered uh, which stripe of government uh, has come after it. Um, we've defended it. But as an educator, I'm not embarrassed about that. I'm frankly proud of it. And it's part of how we built an education system that um, stands amongst the best in the entire world. So every government is trying to raid the education system? Well, let's take a look at this government. What they announced in March was their intention to slash one out of four high school teachers over the next uh, over the next four years. They slashed uh, thousands of support staff positions. They want to force kids into mandatory e-learning classes with with class caps of 35. Um, when there's no evidence that we have the infrastructure required around the province, when we know some kids simply can't afford the hardware they're re- that they need, and we know that when the kids don't succeed at the same rates as they do in face-to-face classrooms. So that's what get, this government has done. And then they want, to, they want to claim that they're in some sort of righteous position with regard to uh, their defense of education. It, it just doesn't stand up to scrutiny. All right, there's uh, a clip from uh, late December 2019 uh, in the midst of uh, the contract negotiations and all the hassles and strikes and rotating strikes going on. And 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 again, when I que- questioned Harvey Bischoff about how this happens with all governments, again, you heard it. He said all are out to raid the education system to, to put the money somewhere else. And, you know, I, I just... You know, this is what that basically says to me is this battle will never be won, that they'll no matter what is, you know, a solution or or what is the next answer. It's just it's never enough. And, you know, I think when you walk into a negotiation with that attitude that every every political party, NDP, liberal and conservative are all out to raid the education system. Is it any wonder that we are where we are? You know, uh, the, the, the government will never be able to supply, the government of the day will never be able to supply everything that the union wants. So that's a win. And then in this case, if there's an infection, which there will be, they can sit and say, I told you so. And, and, and there you go. Excuse me while I close the window because they're fixing the fence. Um, but anyway, it, it just goes around and around and around. And, and, and the union knows how to strategically put the government of the day into a position where there's no win. So it's picking the best thing off a bad menu. And again, you know, the one thing that I must admit, at least they've come out this time and said it's about their members. It's about the safety of the teachers, which I can appreciate. At least they're not trying to sell it like it's all about the kids which is what they were doing back in December of 2019 when that call was recorded. Uh, Let's bring in Aaron O'Toole, leader of the Conservative Party, the Federal Conservative Party, brand new leader, and he is with us now. Aaron, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Congratulations. Thank you, Scott. It's great to be with you. 
Uh, I'm, I'm going to play devil's advocate right off the top here and get uh, all the tough ones out of the way. Uh, many have said that you were elected by social conservatives of the party. Uh, we hear this, I think, every time a conservative is elected, <laughs> that uh, the opposition is saying, well, what about this? What about this and, and that and, and the social conservative wing of the party? Uh, do you owe them anything now? Uh, what do you have to say to those that are concerned you're going to take the party uh, further right? Well, that's uh, that's the line from the Liberals after my win. What, but what's interesting about it, Scott, is my top province in in the results was Quebec, and uh, and that's I guess the most socially liberal province in the country. I was not the first choice of social conservatives. That was Miss Lewis, uh, generally. Um, but I had support in all parts of the country, all parts of the party. And people know I've always defended rights. I'm personally pro-choice, and I've, I've always voted for the LGBT community, community, even when Justin Trudeau skipped votes, I was there. But I, I treat everyone with respect, and I think this is going to be something that people are seeing with me as they get to know me. Uh, in politics, people aren't always going to agree on all things. But as leader, I'm going to set the course that we defend rights of Canadians, and we're trying to build a more prosperous Canada post-pandemic. Um, so the, the narratives the Liberals are throwing out just won't work, because I actually have a better record on some issues than Mr. Trudeau himself. Uh, what about systemic racism? We're certainly seeing uh, the social unrest that's going on in the United States. We're certainly seeing, uh, as well, evidence of that in Canada. Certainly not comparing the two. I think that's an unfair comparison. Uh, but your thoughts on systemic racism in Canada? Does it exist? And, and, and what do we have to do to, uh, to, to unite this country? Well, there certainly is racism and intolerance in Canada, and we have to stamp it out and have a zero zero tolerance. Again, this is something that I've actually been raising for a few years now. Um, I wrote to several liberal ministers on behalf of a constituent that I think was discriminated against because of his skin color and one of the departments of the government. And if that happens, and if there's any... Uh, any evidence that that is a writ large problem, uh, we we need a total overhaul. Because I, as a conservative, I want a merit-based society that has no barriers for anyone, and people should have opportunity to succeed in Canada, regardless of their background, their their culture, their religion, their sexual orientation. That's going to be my approach. I try and have a responsible conversation on these issues, which is hard in the age of Twitter, but uh, that's going to be my approach as Conservative leader and as Prime Minister. All right, September 23rd, big throne speech coming down. Uh, we hear that it's going to be chock full, uh, first of all, very, very expensive and, and chock full of ideas for a new direction in a new world post uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, do you believe this is loaded up for bear so uh, opposition will call an election here? Well, Mr. Trudeau's in the driver's seat. You know, he's the largest party in a, in a minority parliament. Um, he prorogued parliament because there was some tough questions about his corruption, personally, uh, and his finance minister resigned. So is this reset about uh, about the country, or is it about trying to save the Liberals' hide? Uh, I think it's about saving their skin. We are going to do what's in the best interest of the country. I don't think an election is that right now. I want to hear a real plan to grow the economy and to to provide jobs for people as they're coming off the the CERB and other programs. I haven't seen that yet from this government. Remember, they were two months late on the coronavirus. Um, The Conservatives were were on it in January. So we've been ahead of the government at most steps. We're going to propose our own measures to get people working. And as I did during the pandemic, I've offered to work with the government where I can. But I've, I've also been very concerned that the country's got less opportunities and more divided after four years of Mr. Trudeau. Many have said in the past that the Conservatives didn't have much of a climate plan, uh, climate strategy moving forward. Obviously, with this September 23rd throne speech, uh, all indicators are this it's going to be a heavy green plan. Um, how do you combat that? What, what will your response be to such a plan? Well, I think people in Ontario should remember the last time Jerry Butts and, and the people did that with the Green Energy Act in Ontario. What happened? Uh, bills went up and there was no actual action. Uh, I want to see proper environmental measures. I want to see the reduction of greenhouse gases. I actually agree with you. I think in the past we didn't live up to what we should have on smart policies on the environment. Uh, I worked on the environment in the private sector. It matters a lot to me. 
And you're going to see the Conservatives have some serious policies, not just taxes, not hashtags and, and green-styled programs. How can we get large emissions down, work with Premier Ford, work with Premier Kenny and others? How can we support uh, transit like the LRT in Hamilton? I was happy to hear your report before I came on. I've been advocating for that for about half a year now. Uh, I think it's, it's good. So they're going to see a really pragmatic approach from the Conservatives that's going to help our economy grow and not close down parts of our economy uh, under the guise of green this, green that. We need pragmatic, smart policy, and that's what they're going to see from a government uh, led by me with real experience in the real world, uh, unlike Mr. Trudeau. What's your biggest challenge as a leader? We've heard you say bringing everybody together under the tent, that sort of thing. But when it comes to challenging for the job of prime minister, what's your biggest challenge? Well, right now, I don't think enough people know me. You know, I, I joke sometimes that Mr. Trudeau, uh, you know, the firstborn son of the prime minister, his birth was covered in McLean's magazine. Mm. N- not many people know who Aaron O'Toole is. I'm a kid that grew up in the GTA suburbs, uh, middle class home. I served in the military for 12 years. Uh, my wife helped put me through law school, and then I worked in the private sector for 10 years. I'm in politics to, to fight for, for families and for our country. I'm not a celebrity, but I don't think you need to be a celebrity to be a good leader. And I think as more people get to know me, my approach, I'm the first leader from Ontario for the Conservatives since 1948. And so I I think there's a lot of momentum we have. That's part of the reason why Mr. Trudeau might try and trigger an election. But I'm going to work hard, and that's why chatting with you, Scott, and the folks uh, in the Hamilton area is, is part of what I want to do to get my name out there. It seems, the last questions, I, I know you got to run here, Aaron. It, it seems that we live in an incredibly divisive world now. And even this was before COVID-19, either you're extreme left or extreme right or what have you. Uh, do conservatives realize the win here is in the middle? Or is that the case? Well, the conservatives realize we have to grow our tent. That's why at my speech at one thirty in the morning after I won, I, I said, Yes, I stayed up for it, by the way. Again. A lot of people stayed up and then saw it on YouTube, and I've gotten good compliments. I said, take a look at the conservatives again, because I want a party that doesn't matter your race or creed or religion, your sexual orientation, um, how you're doing in life. Like, I'm here to fight for you, and we're going to try and forge a way forward for our country after a very difficult time in our nation's history. And I think we don't need... Um, symbolism and and hashtags, which I think is what the Trudeau throne speech is going to be. We need to get people to work. We need to to support transit, support programs to help Canadians and and to get our economy bounced back. We have to restore our reputation on the world stage and and heal some of the national unity rifts out west. So uh, that's going to be our message. And I think the Conservative Party, the new invigorated Conservative Party, more people will see themselves reflected in it. Do you think the big issue will be climate change this election uh, um, over and above, I guess, COVID-19, obviously the recovery of that. But next to that, do you think climate change will be the issue? It seems that's the issue the Liberals are trying to make. That's the issue they're trying to make. The issue will be who's going to make sure our economy regrows, who's going to make sure we're ready for any future wave of covid any possible threat or, or issue in the in the future, because right now our country can't withstand another huge economic shock like we've just been through. The Trudeau government was months late. Minister Haiju was telling people there was nothing to worry about in mid or early March. The Conservatives were actually sounding the alarm in January. We're, we're going to show Canadians that we can rebuild, we can work on growing the country, but we can make sure we provide more self-sufficiency. I've, I've worked with Premier Ford to bring mask manufacturing to Ontario. We're going to be ready, and we're going to get people working again. I think that will be the top issue. Aaron O'Toole has been with us, the new leader of your federal Conservative Party. Aaron, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thank you very much, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Supercrawl canceled this year because of the obvious COVID-19 pandemic and uh, obviously disappointment uh, all around because of that. Uh, And certainly we know the impact that it had on the city, but an abbreviated version of just to keep the spirit alive uh, and everybody aware of what's going on. Uh, Now they have announced what is going on with that uh, Skytop Live concert series. Let's bring in Tim Potasek, co-owner, Sonic Onion, organizer of Supercrawl, and with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm great. Thanks, Scott. How are you? 
I'm doing well. So again, talk about this, uh, and, and I guess uh, this sort of was let out of the bag last week, or a couple of weeks ago, that uh, something like this would be happening. Now we've got the actual acts uh, being announced. So first, uh, tell us what this is, what it's about, where it's happening, and then uh, give us the acts that'll be there. Yeah, sure. So it's uh, happening September 24th, 25th, 26th. 27th, and it's on the roof of the York Boulevard Parkade, so the parkade that's attached to the Eaton Centre and across the street from the uh, Farmer's Market in the library on York Street downtown. So on the seventh floor, we're going to create an environment um, and uh, do socially distanced shows um, Thursday evening, Friday evening, Saturday afternoon and evening, and Sunday afternoon and evening with a variety of, of different artists. Uh, 100 tickets available for each show and um, we're going to create like a really kind of cool environment we're working with the clear eyes collective a local arts group that's going to create like art installations up there for us so that we make it really not feel like a parking garage Um, and uh, yeah we're really excited to have be able to provide some music to the city uh, we talked about this before, and this is just a great idea. I'm not surprised you guys have come up with this. But again, you're doing this on top of a parkade. You talked about the environment. Any idea, for those who uh, have never experienced a concert in a parkade before, what this will be like? What will that environment be like? Uh, well, we're on the top floor, so we're open air, which is quite cool. So, um, you know, it's. Uh, I know these types of things have happened around the world and in Canada before where people have taken these you know, unique sort of environments um, and uh, been able to do shows up there. So we're going to build out the full stage. Uh, we're going to cordon off a, an area that's, um, you know, the area that we need for social distance um, uh, environment for people to uh, to be in. But really, it's, it's, it's going to be a bit weird. I have to be honest, like, but, <clears throat> you know, neat to try. And, um, You'll uh, you'll come in. You can use the elevator. You can walk up seven flights of stairs, whatever you wish. Um, and uh, because it's only a hundred people, we think that people should be able to get up the elevator fairly quickly, four at a time. Um, <clears throat> but uh, you'll walk into the area, and you'll have to go directly to your seat. Uh, and we'll serve you at your seat if you want to have a beer, wine, glass of water, pop. Um, and uh, in between, the artists will allow people to get up and move socially distancing to see a couple of the uh, local James Street uh, retailers. We're going to have some vendors up there. So we want to try to spread the love around and see if we can, you know, build a little bit of business for some of the James Street merchants that are trying to reopen now um, and help them out with uh, the ability to, you know, have 100 people at their beck and call with, you know, not a lot to do between bands other than to chat with your friend who will be six feet away from you and, uh, and listen to some music in between bands and check out some art. So how much space do you actually have up there? I mean, have you made use of all of the space in the sense that this will all be taken up by stage, this will be for displays of some sort, and here is the seating, uh, which is, of course, as you mentioned, uh, you know, a safe distance apart. Have you got the maximum amount of seats that you can get into that space? Well, we're only permitted 100. Is that? Oh, that's um, right, too, obviously, yeah. Right, so... We can yep. only do a hundred people, right. um, so that's uh, you know whatever it's a law, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yep. We're under these restrictions, so we're using about a third of the parkade rooftop. Right. But we're gonna, you won't know that. I mean, you'll probably know that there's some more rooftop available, but we're gonna create an environment so that you don't, you know, it's not just big waste wasteland of extra space up there. Um, you know, we had envisioned at some point doing a show with a thousand or two thousand people up there right. uh, years ago, which you could because it's big enough to do that. But um, socially distanced, we're using about a third, and everyone will be six feet apart from everyone else, and big, uh, you know, ten foot wide um, aisleways for people to walk through to get to their chairs. So it actually does take up a lot of space to put a hundred chairs down. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. Um, you know, it's uh, it's kind of interesting. We've toyed with doing, you know, t- tables only and selling full tables. But, you know, some people uh, that would force people to have to buy a table. Um, right. And we want to try to make it as accessible as possible. So if you want a single seat, you can buy a single seat. Is this a test run? I mean, wh- wh- say next year, everything's back to normal. Let's cross our fingers and super crawl can be held. Is this another option? Absolutely. We'd love to use the rooftop into the yeah. future for Supercrawl. Um, 
you know, we were we were denied use of it a few years ago when we wanted to use it, and I think it was simply because maybe they were there was a bit of um, reluctance to the volume of people that we wanted to put up there because, you know, putting a hundred capacity shows is not like the most financially viable situation in the yeah. world. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know, because we have to pay the artists fairly and we have to pay a lot in production. Trust me, it's going to be quite an orchestration trying to get all of the equipment upstairs. Um, our mm. pickup, our Sonic Onion pickup truck just fits, but the production trucks don't fit. So we're going to have to figure out a way to get everything into the pickup trucks and drive the pickup trucks up to the top, unload them and drive them back down. It's about a 10 minute drive in case anybody's <laughs> curious. Oh man. Oh man. That's hilarious. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Well, you know, when you get a great, great idea, obviously there's challenges there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, round and round we go. We like to say like we got halfway up the other day and we're like, Oh my God, this is taking forever. <laughs> oh. So, uh, so tell us about who is there and ticket information, how we get all that. Okay. Um, tickets go on sale tomorrow at 10. And uh, the kickoff is Tim Hicks on Thursday. So, and we literally just added Tim to this lineup Monday. So, it's uh, a lot of this is very, you know, it's not last minute, but it is, so to speak. Um, they got wind that we were doing it and they were like, we want in. And I was like, okay, we'll figure it out. Um, so, all of the tickets for all four or six shows go on sale tomorrow at 10 uh, with uh, Tim Hicks uh, on the Thursday. Um, that's a $60 ticket. Lee Harvey Osmond is a $30 ticket. Uh, on the Friday, Choir, Choir, Choir is a $30 ticket for the matinee and the evening shows. Uh, and Scratch Bastard is also, is a $20 ticket on the, uh, or the matinee and the evening show. So they all vary in price and they're all different. You know, like we've got Tim for the country, Lee Harvey Osmond for the Americana, Choir, Choir, Choir for the, you know, fun, uh, show. Uh, scratch bastard for the you know for the hip-hop um so it should be you know it's pretty we've got a lot of extra cool things too i mean as far as openers with uh, jessica's opening with tim hicks and she'll probably do some songs with him evangeline gentle's opening for lee harvey osmond on the choir day and night we have a fashion show and a drag show that's going to be happening as the accompaniment to that and uh, scratch bastard we have locals uh, lt the monk and Hatchy the mouthpiece that will be opening for him. So all the shows are quite cool, quite different, super fun. Um, and uh, I'll just hint at the fact that this is just tip of the iceberg. We actually have more coming, which will be announced in the coming weeks. So how do you arrive at a price on a ticket when you've got limited seating, you've still got costs, so your revenue is obviously trimmed? How do you decide, you know, and obviously it's a very unique event and people will pay for that, but how do you decide what's fair, what works? I mean, how do you make this work logistically? Yeah, it's really quite challenging. I mean, all of the artists have, you know, different guarantee levels and um, for the way we're working figuring it out is that the ticket price, you know, uh, doesn't come close to really covering the cost. No. Supercrawl Super Crawl has grant money, so we're using the grant money to backstop the difference between what the artists have to get paid and what the production team has to get paid so that we could put on these shows. So, you know, to do a 100-seat ticket show for Tim Hicks, um, you know, I mean, he can sell a around 3000 tickets, I think in Hamilton. Yeah. So last time through. So, you know, it's really limited. Uh, we wanted to keep the prices as reasonable as possible, but also we want to be able to run as many shows as possible too. So we're trying to use part of the revenue to like backstop, you know, so that we're able to do more as we move forward. So we'll have another series of um, a few more ticketed shows, but we're going to have a series of uh, other shows that are coming as well, but they'll be even more limited um, and a lot of online stuff that's going to be coming down the pipe too. So that'll all be free. So, and how do we get tickets, Tim? Uh, it's, uh, uh, you can go to um, eventbrite.com. All the shows will be there. Um, and supercrawl.ca that will like also, there'll be a link on supercrawl.ca that can uh, push you to the, uh, to the links and we'll put uh, all the links will be available tomorrow morning too via social media so all our social media channels twitter um, instagram facebook 
All right, so uh, tomorrow, 10 a.m., tickets are on sale for the first Sky Sky Top Live concert series uh, on the York Boulevard Parkade. What a cool idea. Tim Potisic's been with his co-owner, Sonic Onion, organizer of Supercrawl, supercrawl.ca, to get more info on all of this. Tim, thanks for the time. Good luck with this. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, uh, lots of chatter in uh, in regard to schools and opening up and such, and uh, and you know one of the lessons we could learn here are from the day camps that uh, ran over the course of the summer and uh, what they learned from everything. So uh, let's bring in Glenn Harkness. Uh, Glenn Harkness from the Boys and Girls Club of uh, Hamilton, and uh, I understand that he's a, a fan of. Uh, you want to do this? Can you do that? So you uh, just say that name right there. So I understand he's a bit of a fan of the intro, so uh, I managed to wrestle Kurt in here one more time. So just go ahead. Here's Glenn Harkness! <laughs> All right, there you go, Glenn. There's your... Oh, and there's even applause afterwards. Thank you very much. What a... There you go. <laughs> What's that? It's the best introduction I've ever had. So thank there you, you go. Much. Same for me. I, you know, it works the same way. Anyway, yeah, yeah. Uh, Glenn, it's so great to talk to you again. It's been a long time since uh, we've chatted, uh, you know, going back to the days of uh, Brian Mello and uh, yeah. Canadian Idol and all that sort of stuff when, yeah. uh, when you guys were following uh, his journey there. So how are things going? How, does, how, how difficult has it been for the Boys and Girls Club of Hamilton to function during a pandemic? Yeah, it was, um, we opened up on July the 6th and... I would I would have to say it was it was a great amount of work to get to July the sixth with uh, ensuring that um, when we opened up on that day that it was um, safe for our participants that were coming into both day camp and child care and safe for our our staff. Um, you know it was very taxing both on our human resource and financially because of uh, the purchases of all our PPE and. Um, we were grateful in getting a, a grant to do that at the end, but it was a great amount of work to ensure that, that we were following both the provincial guidelines and the pu- public health regulations. Obviously, we didn't open up um, until we brought public health in at our different locations to ensure that, that what we were offering and what we were going to do with respect to screening and cohorts um, we're, we're, we're safe for everybody. So it was a team effort, um, um, but it was due diligence uh, every single day. So we opened up July the 6th, and our last day of camp is tomorrow. And it's been a, it's been a great success. It really has been. So as far as health, uh, everybody come through it with flying colors. Any issues at all? No, nope. as far as health, we, we have not had a case Um and we we were very very good at screening and tracking to, um, uh, with respect to both the provincial guidelines and public health reg- regulations. Um, we kept our our kids in cohorts, so we started with groups of ten, and we were given permission um, before maybe midsummer, beginning of August, to go up to um, groups of fifteen. Those numbers, the group of ten and the group of fifteen, included the the staff person. Um, or the two staff people. Um, we screened the children as they arrived uh, with respect to um, temperature checks and the COVID questions, and we, we tracked um, where, where everybody was. And then when they were in our facilities, they all were kept separate in the cohorts where they had their own room to go to in the morning and during the day and their own washrooms. And when there was a rotation, outside, for example, or, or into our pool, for example, the, that, that was timed and one group rotated at a time so that there was no overlap with, um, with groups um, mixing. Um, so again, it, it, it took some staff and some thought and um, some, some thought around the process to make sure all that works. The other thing we did um, it is actually we provided lunch this summer. We usually don't do that in the past. Um, but so that there was less coming into our facilities, we actually got a grant through President's Choice to buy lunch for or purchase lunch that was delivered mm. um, for, for every participant. So 
that worked out too. But you needed to adapt. It, it's a different world, Scott. And I'll give a very quick day camp example. If you were playing a tag game last year, the, or, or historically, you could touch each other and right. in that game. But to adapt to social distancing, we're playing that game, for example. We used um, pool noodles that were six and a half feet long. So um, just, <laughs> just, yeah, just adapting to different things and and, you know, there, there was some talk around, Scott, this is a very important point. There was some talk around, well, how are the kids going to understand and, and, and know that they need to social distance? They were actually part of the, the solution. I, and I think we educated our parents well before coming to camp on July the 6th, and the kids knew that they needed to social distance. And I do believe that they're so educated now about the virus that, that it, some of it comes naturally. Our screening at the beginning, especially when we were doing temperature checks, um, may have scared um, kids at the beginning. Um, but once we told them that um, it's only a reading that, that with that temperature um, check gun, that, you know, everyone was comfortable with them. The other thing we didn't allow is we didn't have parents come into our facility. They dropped mm their child off out front where we were doing the screening and we had staff bring them into to their cohort room. Um, and then when parents came to pick them up, they they called a certain number and um, we, we answered that and brought their child out to their, their car. So, yeah, it was a lot of juggling, but it was very successful. And I think the other important point, um, and I, I know there's so much um, – uh, thought about next week and going back to school. For us, it was the it was the lead up and getting our policies in place around COVID and and getting funding in place and getting our staff in place. And um, because there there wasn't very many camps running this summer, I'm quite proud that the Boys and Girls Club was one of an agency that that ran a camp so that parents could go back to work. Um, but yeah, it was the lead up. And once we got rolling and we knew that it was safe and we knew what we were doing with cohorts and the rotation, it actually became um, a, a, a bit easier. It was the lead up that was stressful to make sure we were prepared to open on July the 6th and that it was a safe, um, supportive environment for, for everybody. And Glenn, you were operating both indoor and outdoors. Is that accurate? Absolutely. And, and thanks for asking that, Scott, because... We did a lot of activity outdoors during the, the day and during day camp. Um, there is good uh, research out there to show that you're actually safer outside. Um, so most of our programming was done outdoors. Um, when I talk about the drop-off in the morning and going to their cohort room, um, that was so that everybody could get there and there'd be different games um, going on in a different craft that was done individually, not not as a group. But once they all arrived, we did that rotation to outdoors and a green space somewhere in the city to to, to have activities um, operate outdoors. Most of it was done outdoors. And then they would rotate into our pool. We'd have one cohort in our pool at a time, so there wasn't overlap with any mm-hmm. uh, any group. So. It was very successful. I'm actually quite proud of the Boys and Girls Club. And we stepped up and um, said to both public health and the province that we would run a camp in child care. And um, it was stressful, especially preparing for that in May and in June, um, not knowing what was happening with the members with COVID. But yeah, it turned out very, very successful. And what about numbers? Did you have to decrease uh, the amount of kids that you normally put through it? How did it affect all that? Yeah, we did have to, to decrease. So I, I think at our main location, we had about 60 um, children per week. And then on top of that, had 40 kids per week uh, involved in our virtual camp. We ran a virtual camp at the same time. Um, so that, that, that 60 per week is, is below um, our historic average, especially for our main lo- location on Ellis Avenue that has the gymnasium and the swimming pool and a, a, a tech center, um, it was well below our, our numbers. But we needed to do that to make sure that kids were, were separated. And, uh, yeah, it was, um, it, it was quite the thing to take on. It was a learning process. Um, you know, I feel for, for the schools next week because it's a lot of work leading up to it but 
I think um, people will find once you get going, you know, I, I think the schools will find the same thing that, that um, you know, the lead up was a, a bit, as long as you do your due diligence every day, the lead up was um, um, a lot more stressful than, than once we got rolling. Uh, what about the ages of the kids, Glenn, there? And, and you, you talked a little bit about this and, and how they were cooperative and, and, and such. What about their attitude and with masks and such when that was needed? Because many are concerned that, uh, you, you know, obviously uh, the government hasn't mandated masks in the lower grades because every place is different, I guess, and that's yeah. up to the individual boards and, and, and classes if they want to do that. Uh, in Hamilton, they have, uh, you know, asked for masks to be worn uh right from K to, to grade 12. Any issue with that or, or uh, the behavior of students and trying to get them involved in this new process and protocol? What was that, what was that like, Glenn? Um, the new, they, they were very um, good in, in adapting to the, the new world, I guess you, you, you can call it, especially with the, with the screening and um, because it's very different for them. They just didn't run to our front door and open it like they did historically and run in and, and press their number into our computer system to let us know that they were there. It was quite different, very, very different for them um, with respect to the screening and the temperature checks and the sanitizing of your hands before going in. So they were, they were I, I, I found everybody to be very adaptable and, and understanding um, especially the participants, why why we were, were doing this. Um, you know, I, I, I walked through our gym, for example, we have one cohort in there eating lunch, and they're all social distancing, and it's, it's a large space um, for, for one group, but um, to, to see them, you know, the six and a half feet apart and eating lunch, but still talking to their friends, you know, over that six and a half uh, feed it. it. It looks different. It feels different, and it is different. But they were all very cooperative. Uh, many have talked about how this affects uh, not only the mental illness. Uh, well, I guess everybody, not just kids. Yeah. Um, but did you notice anything different in, in the morale of the kids this year? Anything different that way, or is it again just you know kids at a summer camp having a great time? Yeah, I think that kids are are so adaptable, and you know, at the end of the uh, day, they they were happy, like their parents, to um, um, get a, away from just isolating inside their homes, like they they did for weeks and weeks. Um, so they were actually both one well behaved and and two adapted to these new new rules and understood why we were doing it. Um, I, I I think my my biggest concern was the kids that that couldn't for some reason get in or come to camp because camps were very very limited this year um there wasn't too many day camps operating and um, throughout the city but um so there there wasn't as many options and i would see some of our participants outside for example and maybe with their buddy and um and you think you know should they be social distancing from them and they're not and so i was more concerned with with um you know, neighborhood kids in our different neighborhoods that we serve not, um, not coming to camp because right. it just wasn't enough space. Yeah, that has to break your heart. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so what, uh, now that, you again, you're pretty much coming to an end, tomorrow is your last day, uh, is there anything that schools can learn from uh, these summer camps that have gone on? Yeah, I think, um, you, know, you know, schools, especially in the last couple of weeks, have um, worked very hard to prepare for their, their staggered starts um, um, come the end of next week. Um, what, what I would say if I was talking to school administration and the boards is to, to, to tell them exactly what I, I've reported here to you, that the, the lead-up was very, very difficult and very um, human resource in, intensive and, and certainly financially um, you know, we took we took a hit with that, um, but but that that's the work, and that's the, that's the reason you put that work in your heart and soul into to, um, ensuring that it's safe before you open the doors the first day. Because um, once you you open, I think they'll find that the students will follow the rules and they're educated on it, and um, they know why why we're doing this and why we're we're in this new world that we're 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 in. So I think. Um, yeah, they'll find that the, the, the students will um, be helpful. Most of them will be helpful in, in following the, the rules. 
And I, I think at the end of the day, some student leaders will merge that perhaps mm. um, didn't have an opportunity to be a student leader in the past and in helping the school administration and helping teachers with, uh, you know, with this new world. It is a new world. Things are going to change. But as you as you presented, there is opportunity there, too, for, for yeah. people to shine. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about advice for parents, Glenn, who are obviously concerned, apprehensive, anxious about the beginning of school? And I'm sure they were the same before they went to summer camp. Yeah. Uh, what would you say to them? What advice do you have for them? Yeah, what I what I like about what the school boards are doing, just like us every single day, is that the 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 end of the day the parent has a choice, um, and there there's a couple in, intake dates um, with with uh, here in Hamilton with respect to going to school that parents can decide. No, I don't want to go in September. I can go on this day, or they ha- they have a choice to, to continue the learning at at home. I think that's huge for parents. Um, I'm not a medical expert and. Um, but what we did is rely on that medical expertise from um, both what the province was, was, was giving us and the, the guidelines that we needed to follow um, through the province and through public health. Um, and, and, you know, at the, at the end, um, like they're going to say about schools, they told us that what we had set up and that time we invested two months before July the 6th, that we were presenting a safe, um, supportive place for for children, and um, they, they allowed us to continue and open up. So I think it's really important to rely on the experts um, in, in this situation as the, the medical uh, field and, and what those experts are saying, and that's what we did. They, they came in and looked first and said, you can do this, this, and this, and this is the size of your cohorts, and this is what you have to do. Um, and that's exactly what we did. We weren't the experts. The medical field, were, they certainly were the experts. And public health did a great job with us. I'm sure they were overwhelmed and continue to be overwhelmed, but they were pretty quick to get to our locations and, and, and at the end of the day approve us for opening. Now that you're pretty much uh, through this, uh, through your camp, uh, last day tomorrow, what have you learned from this experience? You know, I think uh, I, I learned that we're all pretty adaptable, and I think through tough times like this, um, we're, we're living through, you know, a, a, a day that none of us have ever seen before, and I never thought that I would see this where, where the city and the province and the country and the world shuts down. Um, but I, I've learned that we're pretty adaptable, and out of um, a pandemic, um, some positive things can happen. And again, at, at, at the Boys and Girls Club, there, there was some um, young youth that stepped forward to help out and, and stepped into a leadership role that perhaps otherwise wouldn't have had the opportunity to, to do that and, uh, and led by example and, and, and showed the younger kids that, you know, the screening is important, the washing of your hands and sanitizing and the health screening and not sharing your lunch and those things are important. Are, um, just what needs to happen in this day and age now and, and things that we've done before, we can't, we just can't do now. And that's a great example with respect to sharing a lunch or, hmm. or share, even sharing a craft type thing. So you know, I learned that we're pretty adaptable and, and kids are adaptable and they're strong. And, and uh, I just believe that we're all stronger together and we're going to get through all this. Glenn Harkness has been with us, Boys and Girls Club of Hamilton, who tomorrow will have uh, successfully uh, completed their COVID-19 edition of their summer camp. And the great news is all the way through uh, without any sort of outbreak or infections whatsoever. uh, Glenn, congratulations with all of this, because my goodness, uh, as you said, the the work that must have been done in order to get the Boys and Girls Club of Hamilton to this point must have uh, just been incredible. Uh, Glenn Harkness with us from the Boys and Girls Club. Again, Glenn, congratulations. Be well. Thank you. And thank your son for the introduction. (laughs) I will for sure. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.